So welcome to A Correction Podcast. I'm your host, Lev Moscow. And today, I'm really excited to be speaking to Stephanie Dunning. Professor Dunning is an associate professor of English at Miami University of Ohio. And her newest book is Black to Nature, Pastoral Return and African-American Culture. So welcome to the show, Stephanie. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to talk. You know, you teach English and this show is, a, is an econ show. And when I invited you, you said, look, I, I'd be happy to come on, but I, I don't teach economics. And I said, I know, but I'm really interested in what you're writing about. And, and you've got a podcast as well, which is a fantastic podcast. And I'll put the link on our website for the listeners. Um, Thank you. You're, you're very welcome. Thank you. And so I guess I'd like to start with, you know, your book looks at the, the recent trend of Black Americans moving back south. And historians, students of history know that there was a great migration of African-Americans from the south to the north in the early 20th century. What's behind the reverse migration? I think there's a couple of different factors which could explain it. So part of what I do in the book is it, it's less of an analysis of the reverse migration. And I sort of just cite the reverse migration as an example of how a return to the South slash a return, you know, to sort of revisiting ideas or scenes of pastoral locations is, is kind of imbricated in that. But I think that what I say in the book, what I argue in the introduction is that one of the ways in which I argue um, we might understand people's seeing the South now we're seeing more rural locations as like a viable space for Black life is that anti-Black violence is everywhere. So there was ever a kind of a thought that, okay, we, you know, one could leave the South and escape the horrors of lynching and go North. Now it's like because of police brutality and because of the kinds of uh, quotidian ways in which Black life is menaced in the country, regardless of location, it's kind of like there is no, the notion that there is a safe geography for Black people in America doesn't exist in the same way anymore. So I argue that this is one couple of people who um, a couple of, you know, articles and things like that of people who kind of echo that sentiment that every place in the United States is dangerous for Black people. And so when the narrative that the North is safer for a Black person is destabilized, suddenly that opens up these other spaces besides just the urban space or besides just the Northern space for the, for the Black person to live. And, and did you decide to write this book in part because you were seeing new emphasis um, in Black literature on Black people in, in rural settings? You know, I think I decided to write the book because I'm a big nature person and I really like nature. And for a long time, I really felt like it wasn't a viable kind of project because um, when I would talk to people about, you know, oh, I'm going to write a book about nature, you know, many people would sort of be like, Ew. <laughs> you know, like a lot of people just weren't down with that idea. I sort of had to take a risk and, you know, with the help of some amazing colleagues and friends who just encouraged me and said, hey, look, if you want to write about the sort of intersection of Blackness and nature, then you should do that. And, and you know, there was there was some stuff that started to come out, like Carolyn Finney's work was out, Laurent Savoy. Um, there was an anthology on Black nature poetry. And so there were a couple of, of little sort of lights in the dark, 
in terms of people beginning to kind of think about this, but I've been thinking about this project since probably at least 2013. And so, you know, I decided to write it because of how important nature is to me as a Black person. But then Lemonade comes out and, and I was like, oh man, so there's something kind of happening here. And as I began to explore the topic more, you know, I was able to really kind of see almost an unbroken timeline of Black nature representation in Black letters. And, you know, I talk about Zora Neale Hurston and Jean Toomer. I mean, I don't analyze them in chapters, but I mention them. And even going all the way back to slave narratives, there's an attention to the natural world in Black texts. And so Black to Nature is, is about some new emerging texts that are doing that, but it, but it also is kind of historicizing the representation of nature in Black texts going, you know, all the way to the beginning of Black letters. Why do you think that, that mainstream media neglects some aspects of, of the Black American experience, specifically the, the de-emphasis of, of rural life and, and more of a focus on, on urban life? And, and what are the implications of that? I mean, I think that some of the implications of, of that is that it, it reinforces or it kind of disincentivizes a Black engagement with nature to some extent because it reinforces a kind of racist narrative that, that Black people only belong in certain places. And so when you look at a text like Lemonade, for example, a lot of the work that Lemonade is doing, I think, is kind of revealing these aspects of Black life that we don't see in the mainstream media. So if you if you go back and you look at Beyonce's Lemonade, like there are scenes of of Black people sort of riding horses, presumably around like Louisiana, Mississippi, Bayou type places. I mean, there's nothing wrong with Black people being associated with urban spaces per se. And there's an ecological reading to be done of that as well. It's just that when the suggestion exists or when Black people exist in the minds of the rest of society as only urban subjects, then when Black people are not in urban spaces, that has certain kinds of implications like, oh, I didn't expect to see a Black person in this space or that space. And access to natural spaces and pastoral spaces um, is an important you know, right. It's an important human right. And constructing Black people as somehow out of place in those places is, you know, is a, is a problem. And uh, I mean, and it, it, that, that extends the logic of anti-Blackness in this society, really. You've written about what Black people can gain from giving up the myth of American progress. What do you mean by that? Well, generally speaking, this is sort of how I often present this to my students. You know, we, we, have, we have these like grand narratives, um, these grand mainstream narratives. And one of those narratives relative to racism is that, you know, all we have to do is kind of keep working really hard and eventually, you know, we'll all be free one day and everything will be the way it's supposed to be, where everyone gets an equal shake at everything and so on. That's the progress narrative, right? The progress narrative says, you know, work hard go to college, be a good citizen, you know, and there's a lot of respectability politics rolled into that as well. And then you too can have the rewards of the American dream. And there are lots of ways in which that American dream can be critiqued. It can be, for instance, I'm critiquing it through the lens of the ways in which it, you know, the society is built upon and relies upon anti-Blackness in order to exist. So, you know, so there's a contradiction involved in that progress narrative 
in relation to Black folks, but it can be critiqued in other ways as well. So this progress narrative I'm talking about, you know, you can see it in a text like Daughters of the Dust, which I also talk about, where the Pizant family, members of the Pizant family, are immigrating from the Sea Islands to the mainland. And the idea is that they're going to progress, they're going to become wealthier, they're going to, you know, move forward as American citizens. But the matriarch of the family rightly tells them, up north, you're not going to find a land of milk and honey. And so that is implicitly the text undermining this notion that all the Black person really needs to do is work hard, and then this whole American project will work out. (laughs) So... What history has shown us actually though, is that, and what Afro-pessimism essentially sort of argues is that fiscal success does not equal freedom, first of all, nor does does a minority of black people gaining fiscal success represent freedom for black people as a whole. And that is all complicated by capitalism and the way in which capitalism itself is implicated in in a structure of inequality. There are all of these ways in which like the progress narrative is kind of a delusion that exists to dissimulate the ways in which our society is actually structured and actually works. And so that's really what I mean by the progress narrative. And nature, I argue, is a metaphor that is used to indicate the boundary of this civilization. It's used to think about, you know, what's on the other side of Western civilization? Um, Because Western civilization is, it's a structure, it's a thing. And it hasn't always existed and it probably won't always exist. And so then the question becomes, what is outside of this? Yeah, you wrote that you hope that activists who read Black to Nature will come away with a a holistic understanding of Afro-pessimist argument against abolition. So maybe you could talk a bit more about Afro-pessimism and what you mean by by abolition in this context. Yeah, I wrote that I I would like for people to have an understanding of of the Afro-pessimist argument for abolition because Afro-pessimists argue for abolition. Abolition here really means the dismantling of all capitalist, anti-Black, and colonizing social and political structures. That is what abolition means. And what I want people to understand, because there's a debate within uh, Black studies about Afro-pessimism, where you know, the Afro-pessimists claim that the sort of ideological framework of slavery has never ended. Many people take umbrage with that, and, and they read Afro-pessimism as saying that um, it's impossible for Black people to ever achieve anything like life, or it's, it's impossible for, you know, more sort of optimistic readings about the possibilities within Blackness. And I don't really see Afro-pessimism as making an argument about the limits of Blackness. What I see Afro-pessimism arguing is it doing is making an argument about the limits of the system. <laughs> so if the, the promise of the American project is like life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness, what Afro-pessimism is saying, well, it, it can never deliver that for, well, probably for anyone, but it especially cannot deliver that for Black people because 
the whole notion of Western freedom is premised upon anti-Blackness. And so, so Western freedom can't really be achieved because it needs the Black other in order to aid the metaphysical human on its its journey towards like wholeness and, and, and completion. Abolition means like actually true freedom. It would mean freedom for everybody. But as Frank Wilderson says, you know, a Black revolution makes everybody freer than they want to be. He might be quoting Sadia mm-hmm. Hartman there, but it's in a, it's, that's from a, I, I'm taking that from an interview with Frank Wilderson. So that's really what I mean by abolition. And that's the way in which I'm, this is a framing that I'm giving the Afro-pessimist theoretical discourse to sort of say, yeah, it's, it's not about like, oh, Black people can never be free. It's about this system will never be the site of freedom for Black people. Yeah, because we come across this term sometimes in, in our classes, and just so that I'm clear if I'm explaining it to high school students, is Afro-pessimism inherently anti-capital? Yes. I would, I'll take a risk and say yes. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's fair. No, it's great. And when you say that this system, this this liberal capitalist system that we have, um, can't deliver real freedom for most people, and certainly not for Black people, what does, and again, I'm, this is a, a huge question, but what does your vision look like? If, if not this system, then what system? You know what? I, I really, I cannot answer that question because I think that it is very difficult to, it's difficult to sort of say, okay, here is the answer. Because I think if the answer were easy and obvious, people would be doing it somewhere. It's an incredibly complex question that would require a a whole team, (laughs) a wide, broad team of humans to, to, to figure out, you know, what would be a way to organize ourselves and organize resources that didn't exploit labor and and exploit people. I mean, I have some amorphous notions about what I think would characterize a better society. I'm not, but I'm not prepared to sort of say, okay, this, right? Like this is the structure that would really, really work versus something else. And I think there's a lot of folks who are starting to think in certain kinds of directions, like about anarchy and other kind of models, anarchy in the in the purely philosophical sense, not in the pop culture sense. I think, you know, there's a lot of thinking to be done in that direction, but I would hesitate to name something when I haven't really put my mind there. Not not yet anyway. Mm-hmm. And that's fair. And I don't I don't think I could name <laughs> something either. Um, it's it's a it's, it's an incredibly difficult question. I guess I guess I was thinking, are there some spaces or there's some moments in your life when you feel like, yeah, this is closer to what I'd like society to be like than, than when I'm like in Times Square or in Las Vegas or something. I think that of, of places and different kinds of environments feel different to mean something different to each kind of individual person. I probably tend, even though I'm, in, I'm completely pessimistic about our current regime, I'm generally optimistic about whatever possibilities could exist. So I would I would hesitate to say that there is a single model of what, you know, liberated human living would look like. I think there could be lots of different models. There could be a city model, there can be a country model. Because people are really pressed into different kinds of corners by the system, you know, people are fighting to survive in multiple ways, like from making ends meet to just, you know, trying 
to not be oppressed by the state. There are all these ways in which human intellect and spirit is like held hostage by the system. And of course, it's also if you are to if you were to attempt to do an experiment of a different kind of society, you will be punished uh, in a martial way by you know, the powers that be, right? So, I mean, if you look at a place like Cuba, for example, which I'm not holding up as, as, an, as, a, as a solution, but what you can see though, is that even just kind of living, even just choosing a different kind of system means you're punished by the so-called democracies of the world, right? So we actually live in a system where participation is compulsory. And it's not only compulsory, but if you choose to live some other kind of way, you are subject to boycott, tariff, and just straight up murder. If you look at an organization like the MOVE organization from Philadelphia, which is a small group of people who were choosing to live a different kind of way, well, I mean, the Philadelphia government just like bombed them and killed them. (laughs) So it's more than just a notion to say, hey, like the abolition of this system or the way this system operates isn't conducive to like human thriving and we need to come up with something else. If you actually do try to come up with something else, you could be subject to to death for that. So that's the situation that when when they start to think about, well, how could we, you know, do things differently? I mean, we're we're sort of like literally enslaved to this way of life. Correct me if I'm wrong. It sounds like you're saying that not only is Afro-pessimism anti-capitalist, but also that capitalism is inherently anti-Black. Is that right? Yes. There were hundreds, maybe even thousands of protests in in this past year after the murder of George Floyd. Yeah. And many of these protests were anti-racist protests, but not explicitly anti-capitalist protests. I'm wondering if capitalism ends up leading to racism, if anti-racist protests are inherently then anti-capitalist, even if they're not articulated as such? Well, you know, I I think they could be, although, you know, I do get into this a little bit in the book in chapter three, when I talk about uh, the television show Queen Sugar. And I talk about the ways in which middle class status or upper class status as a goal is at odds with movements that want to defund or get rid of the police because, you know, the police exist to protect property. It could be literal property. It could be the property of whiteness. And so, so when we're caught up in capitalist pursuits and capitalist fantasies and goals, so to speak, we are at odds at that moment with all the iterations of abolition. So whether or not People protesting recognize that or know that, I can't say, I don't know. But property has a shadow and the shadow of property is police. So if you want to get rid of police, then you also are going to mess with the way property operates because how would anybody keep their property without the police? Without the police and without the military, what would keep the indigenous people of Turtle Island from reclaiming their land. These are the, some of the implications of that relationship between capitalism, property, and anti-Blackness that are often kind of buried beneath that all we need to do is have a couple of laws to check police officers 
but we're going to keep police officers because you're going to keep property. These are the relationships. These are the structural relationships that lie below the surface of those critiques. So if you want to end police, you also have to end property. Now, I, I of course, am for the ending of property. I don't know the extent to which people understand that relationship or recognize that relationship between the police state, the military state, and ownership, property ownership. So, but it, but it is a relationship that exists and they do mutually constitute one another. So I'm, I'm thinking about next year and how I might use your book in the 10th grade. The, <laughs> the 10th grade history class that I teach is a class from um, basically the end of the 15th century to we try to get to the present, but we basically always seem to end up in the middle of the Cold War. I'm wondering how you might suggest that I, or any high school history teacher, use your book in, in, yeah, in a history class. What I would do is I would, I would probably show them Lemonade by Beyonce and Daughters of the Dust and teach chapter one um, of the book. Because I think that chapter one of the book is, is probably like, would be the most accessible for say a 10th grader. I think everyone can kind of understand the ways in which black women have been stereotypically represented as other in society. There's lots of examples of that that you can kind of show. And then you can you can have a, a kind of discussion about how nature is being used in those texts to rebut many of the ways in which black women are represented by the mainstream culture. So that is how I would use it. The, the, some of the later chapters are definitely much more theoretically abstract, um, which isn't to say they, they couldn't be used per se, but I think that the, that chapter one probably be most interesting to them as well too, because it's pop, it's more pop culture. So you, you've written that nature was the, I mean, you, you just said that black women are treated as the other, and, and you've also written that nature was the original yeah. other. Um, what, what do you mean by that? If you, and I, there's a lot of um, echo criticism and ecological scholars who reveal this in their work as well. In European culture, like going back to Descartes and Francis Bacon, is constructed as a kind of enemy or a kind of thing that needs to be controlled. Francis Bacon says, you know, nature is like a slave that needs to be broken on the rack. And so what I argue is that out of this construction of nature as an object, as and, and not only an object, but a bad object, a bad object that has to be controlled and tamed and broken, so to speak, that, that anti-Blackness originates or arises or is related to this way of seeing nature. So then anything Europeans saw as being close to nature or related to nature, which is how they saw all non-European peoples, but most especially how they constructed Africans for a very specific political reason. But that uh, construction of nature as other becomes the framework by which all other non-European people are perceived. And so a similar kind of discourse about needing to break the African and control the African and so on comes to characterize racist discourse arising out of those philosophies in Europe. 